In the passage that we looked at this last Lord's Day, the Lord encouraged the Christians, be one even as we are one. Christian unity is an important value. But there might be some more to the story than just all Christians being sort of universally homogenized. Let's talk about it on Beyond the Notes. Look, uh, by the way, I'm Pastor Russell, and I want to welcome you to this episode. The sources of Christian unity, I think, are unfolded in the book of Ephesians. Now, look, unity matters. It's a terrible testimony to the world when Christians are constantly bickering and fighting among themselves. It's a, it, it sends the wrong message. It depicts our Savior in a crazy way, and it just doesn't make any sense. On the other hand, there are, there are reasons that matter, that in my view are not sinful, why, uh, why not, it is not always practicable for all Christians to uh, either look just alike or to uh, execute their fulfilling of God's will in just the same ways. A couple of verses that speak to the sources of Christian unity can be found in the book of Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 4 says a lot about unity. Now, as a footnote, before we look at Ephesians chapter 4, remember Paul wrote the book of Ephesians to a particular local church. And so in the tightest possible application sense, the statements of unity in the book of Ephesians are being made to a particular church, not to sort of all Christians everywhere. Now, I say that because Christian unity still matters as a principle regarding all Christians everywhere based on the things that we've seen and will see in John chapter 17. But meanwhile, back in Ephesians 4, here's a statement in Ephesians 4, 3, where he's talking about how the, how the Christians ought to walk. And he says in verse 3, picks it up in the middle of the sentence, they ought to be in their walk, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is, unity of the Spirit. So the ultimate basis for any sort of Christian unity is the fact that God the Holy Spirit lives within and possesses all Christians. And God the Holy Spirit in me ought to be able to get along with God the Holy Spirit in you if we are both uh, authentically born-again believers. In verse 13 of the, of the same chapter, he talks about the importance of the teaching of leaders in the church, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. And again, our unity there is, is in, a, in a common confessional understanding. And that's going to be important in a moment when we talk about unity, because in conversations about unity, there's always this tension that arises between unity and truth. And I want to say more to that tension in just a moment. But before we do that, there are, some, there are some false boundaries to unity that at least some of us have sometimes seen interfere with Christians and their ability to get along well together. For example, no two Christians should fail to get along because they are of different ethnicity. Uh, the human race, Adam's race, is the only legitimate race there is. I very much follow the thinking of Ken Ham of Answers in Genesis on that. I am a, a literal creationist, and in my own personal position, a fairly a, a young earth creationist, as we are called. And that means 
Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives didn't come off the ark all that many thousands of years ago, which means I'm pretty closely related to every human on birth, regardless of my my melanin level or the texture of my hair. It's uh, a pretty uh, ridiculous um, grounds for disunity if I am not able to to function as a believer in Christ alongside people whose whose skin tone is different than mine. Uh, that's just silly. Uh, styles of of worship. Um, you know, I think that the living God who created both the uh, oh, blue whale and the tick is very, very capable of expressing himself and being appreciated in all manner of different styles. Jesus is Lord of reggae, and Jesus is Lord of classical pipe organ, and Jesus is Lord of, dare I say it, rap. You didn't know a 60-year-old white guy would say that. Jesus is Lord of jazz, and Jesus is Lord of show tunes, and Jesus is Lord. And to to uh, take the position that he is more honored by my style of music than he is by yours is kind of silly. Now, the lyrics have to be true. If you're singing untruth, you're not honoring the Lord. But if you're singing untruth to uh, a waltz melody or a uh, ska arrangement, truth is truth. And there should be no struggle for unity because of styles. Perhaps we could teach one another a thing or two. There should be no struggle for unity across generations. That's one of the funniest ones of all, because every if you have a long enough lifespan, you're, it's going to be the case that during the course of your life, you're going to have either been a part, you presently are a part, or you will one day be a part of every single generational layer. And so to decide that the general generational layer that I I occupy today is so superior that I can't get along well with people, you know, 10 or 15 years older or 10 or 15 years younger, or that's just silly. Again, the the body of Christ is designed in such a way that there should be no issue of generational disunity. Economic status, same thing. We should not have any issues worshiping side by side, serving side by side with people from all over the economic spectrum. The kingdom of God is not a place where that all matter because we all acknowledge together God owns it all. Geography and language. Sometimes that can be hard because you just can't get to people or the language barrier creates a situation where it's hard to to serve together and demonstrate unity if you don't speak the same language, but it's not a necessary barrier. And I know many of us have been involved in in transcultural missions where we've served alongside people who don't speak the same heart language that we do. All of these examples can, should, and have been overcome as barriers to unity for the sake of the kingdom. And that's a good thing. We've demonstrated to the world that the world will pay any attention at all, that we can get along well across barriers of, of ethnicity and generation, style, economic status, and geography and language. And that's a really good thing. Now, Jesus stressed the value of unity a couple of times in John chapter 17. In John 17, verse 11, he said, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, unlike the Ephesians verses that I read, this 
plea from the Son to the Father for unity among believers is much broader than one local church. And then down in 1723, same chapter, a lower verse, he says, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. Here it is. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. That unity between and among believers is to be a distinctive by which the world can recognize us. Now, the question becomes, is that unity sort of a, well, earlier I used the word homogenization. Does it mean that that all Christians are supposed to, to look alike and all Christians are supposed to express themselves in the same ways and all Christians are supposed to be to be able to serve alongside each other in all cases and all causes as long as those cases and causes are, well, labeled as Christian? My answer to that is, is a, a, a probable no. I, I uh, have heard it said that if you, if you sacrifice truth for the sake of unity, you'll end up with neither because you've explicitly let go of truth for the sake of unity if you do that. And then the unity that you have is going to be a little bit fragile and probably at the end of the day, a little bit fake, kind of a, on a very, very shallow level at the best because of, of disagreements without, without truth. It's my conviction that the, the aim and, and methods by which we pursue any task in which we are going to be unified, whether it is the, the, uh, the life of a particular body of Christ or whether within that body of Christ it's some project group working on something that, that and again, both should be demonstrative of unity, or even, even some unity possible between and among diverse bodies of Christ. The question is, do the, do the aims and methods align confessionally to, to the level of, of, of what you're after. In other words, uh, if, the, if the people of one uh, church decide to work together on, with the people of another church on cleaning up a city park, it doesn't take a great deal of confessional alignment to agree that weeds are bad and trash is bad and garbage ought to go in garbage cans and broken down park equipment ought to be replaced. But once we begin to work together on, on more and more profound kingdom enterprise, then confessional alignment becomes more and more of an issue. What do I mean by confessional alignment? Well, since we're talking about unity and confessional alignment, I believe is an important component of that to a degree. Let's talk about sort of three levels where, where we, we agree as Christians. What I would call the, the primary level, primary matters, are uh, sort of Apostles' Creed, Nicene Creed, um, the things that make a Christian a Christian. Areas where if you, if you disagree with me and I disagree with you, then one of us is not a Christian, period. For example, I do not agree with my Hindu neighbors on the, the verbiage of the, of the Nicene Creed. But I do agree with my Methodists and Presbyterian and Assembly of God brothers on the language of the Nicene Creed, a very old, by the way, Christian confession of faith that dates from about 325 A.D. If you don't hold to some uh, Jesus is both God and man, Jesus is born of a virgin, that salvation is by grace through faith based in the work of Christ alone. If you don't hold to those things, what you are is not a Christian. Those are primary matters. 
Then there are secondary matters that speak to uh, generally the distinctives that define denominations and particular churches. Uh, Here at McGregor, we are Baptist. That means that we hold that baptism is, is by immersion after conversion in front of witnesses. That is the timing, technique, and testimony of New Testament baptism. That doesn't mean that our, our uh, infant baptizing friends in the Presbyterian church aren't Christian. It just means that we would have a difficult time being in one church together because we have different understandings of baptism. It's a secondary matter. It doesn't mean they're not Christians, but it does mean we can't do church together. So if someone said, well, we need to demonstrate our unity to the world by uniting all the Baptist churches and Presbyterian churches to all get together and have a big baptismal celebration, we would have to say we can't do that because our confessional alignment doesn't, doesn't work on the matter of baptism. And then, by the way, there are third-level issues, tertiary issues, where, honestly, they're just, they're just fun to talk about. Uh, issues like specific timelines for the end times and, and technical details about, about uh, the unfolding of, of salvation and the interplay between the divine and human perspective on, uh, on salvation and various et cetera. Look, that's a lot of words, but here's what I mean to say. Christian unity matters, and it matters a lot. But confessional truth is the best basis for Christian unity. And and confessional truth then guides the extent to which we can serve together and accomplish aims together for the glory of God. That's my take at any rate. And thank you for listening this week on Beyond the Notes.